because one thing that isn't ever really talked about, I guess if you look for it enough, it will be, but a lot of times you see the success stories and you see the happy endings and you see they take years of grinding, gut-wrenching stress and life-threatening stress to a large degree, sum it down into a few articles, and then no one ever really talks about that sort of dark side of entrepreneurship, which is very real. Even to this day, we get people writing in that, oh my gosh, where you been the last 10 years of my life? I've been struggling. And it's like, yeah, we've been here. We just can't reach everybody. Here we are in year two thinking, oh yeah, it's finally here. If I could give anybody one piece of advice, especially now when people talk to me, even just through acquaintances and on the side, you have absolutely got to You know, to put it in perspective, our first year, and we did 90,000 in sales. I mean, we grinded for an entire year and we did 90,000 in sales. And I had to remember that, that if it was easy, everyone would be doing it and the reward wouldn't be there. Before we get started, thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members. So thank you to you both especially our newest and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. Without you guys and gals, we wouldn't be here. So would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? After all, this episode wouldn't be available without our current members helping us cover some of the costs for you to listen for free. If you are willing to help support us and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com to become a Patreon member today. That's austinsbigp.com. Oh, and by the way, Austin's Big P, that stands for Austin's Big Podcast. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com. Now, let's get on with the show. Hi, my name is Billy Thompson. I'm 41 years old, uh, based out of Las Vegas. I'm the co-founder of the Thompson Tee, which is a patented undershirt that blocks underarm sweat. And you said you're in Las Vegas? Correct. Yeah, we recently relocated from California to Las Vegas. Okay. I see you went to West Virginia University too, so you've been all around the U.S.? I did, actually. Yeah, I was born in Pennsylvania on the East Coast and then relocated out to California in 2002, I think right around, I must have been like 25 years old or just before turning 26. And what inspired you to do that? I graduated in 2000, so I caught the tail end of the tech bubble and found myself without a job after about a year getting out of school. And I thought, well, here I was, I had a little bit of money to spend and I thought, well, why don't I, I always wanted to go out to California. I didn't know exactly for what, but just head west. And I literally got in the truck and started driving and I figured if it didn't work out, I'd always come back. And here we are like 16 years later. It's quite a drive. <laughs> it is. It is. I you know. I specifically remember at one point, I was probably somewhere in the Midwest, Kansas or something like that, where it was just flat and you could just see forever. And then it was probably during the middle of the week. And I remember it just dawned upon me, everything that is me right now that has any relevance to my life, because I know no one in this part of the country, in the middle of the country like this, where I was at, is that everything that was me was within basically arm's reach in this little truck that I had. It was a real sort of, at the time, obviously, liberating feeling. Wow, I don't have an address right now. Nobody can send me any mail. I can't get any bills or it's just me inside this car. What type of truck? You know what? It was a two-door 1997 Green Explorer. You could lay down in the back and go to sleep too? 
Well, luckily, I didn't have to sleep in the car on the drive out. Well, that'd be dangerous. If you were supposed to drive and you were sleeping at the same time. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt. I actually charted my trip based on where I could find Motel 6s along the way. Not to give them a massive plug here, but they were the budget, low cost, but consistent level of quality that I could depend on as I went across country. And this was pre-MapQuest, pre-smartphones. I literally went to the Motel 6 and in the back of their little directory, coincidentally, they had all the Motel six locations located along the major freeway systems across the country, like little fold out. And that's how I charted the trip across. I guess I'll have to follow up with Motel 6, see if they want to sponsor this episode now that you give them a plug. <laughs> Please do. Yeah, no, well, definitely. Well, we got to make money here. <laughs> We're business guys, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You said Thompson T. So why don't you give us a little bit of rundown on what your company does a little bit, and then we'll jump back to when you first moved to California and go along your journey. Yeah, got it. Thompson T. Again, it's an undershirt for both men and women that blocks underarm sweat. It's available in two different fits. Your original fit that fits like a traditional undershirt, and then your slim fit that has a little bit of spandex in it that uh, kind of hugs the contours for a little more form-fitting option. Bunch of different colors, bunch of different necklines. We distribute online via thompsont.com and then via Amazon as well. And we're also expanding internationally with Amazon. Did you sweat a lot from underneath your arms? Is that why you did it? You know what? I did. And to a certain degree, I still do, given the right situation and set of circumstances. So right now? <laughs> yes, I could be wearing one right now. But albeit, and surprisingly, and not surprisingly, I mean, if you think about it logically, I didn't worry about it any longer. And even some of our customers have said this too. It actually has dramatically decreased the sweating, right? Because there's that vicious cycle that those who deal with this issue, you know, you lift your arm and all there's the pit mark, then all of a sudden anxiety kicks in, right? And you actually start sweating more. So to remove that anxiety, what I found was that it was kind of conditioning my body to sweat less. I really have been fortunate to experience such a decrease. But to answer your question, necessity was the mother of invention. This started, for me, the issue was exactly seventh grade. I mean, anyone who deals with, and by the way, the clinical term for this is axillary hyperhidrosis. Axillary being your underarms, hyperhidrosis being excessive sweat beyond physiological necessity, which thankfully is getting a lot of attention. It was getting no attention back then. There was nothing on it back then. It was washed with ivory soap and put extra antiperspirant on. Luckily for me, I had a couple other guy friends that dealt with this issue too and kind of became the theme. Let's try the different antiperspirants and different techniques. I remember my one buddy, you know, when Degree came out, it had like this very catchy advertising campaign where they looked like they turned up the dial. It's kind of like when life turns up the dial and it gets hot, Degree does too. They made you think it had some heat activated juice in there. Again, as a post-pubescent teenager, you're willing to do anything. You even had friends tell me, oh, here's what you do. You put 10 swipes on and go in front of the window unit air conditioner and put your armpits there and let it dry. That seems to work really good. Again, issue I dealt with, first line of defense, antiperspirant, second line of defense was always an undershirt. I mean, I've never, I mean, I would have to wear undershirts, under undershirts. Thank God baggy clothes were very in when I was going through school because now with these, or I don't know exactly what the trends are now as far as if it's, everything is slim fit, tight fit, skinny jeans, whatever. That had been very difficult for me. And I had to have a decent amount of space between my outer garment and my underarm and the undershirt. And coincidentally enough, that's also what allowed me to have the realization that if there was an undershirt that could simply just block the moisture from reaching the outer garment, not just me, but a few of my friends. And then I figured if just in my little circle of friends in a small little town that I grew up in had this problem, then there must be a lot of others who had this problem. And that's kind of how the idea was born. 
So was the idea born on the drive out to California? You know what? It actually wasn't. But I remember being excited at the prospects of, I knew there was the garment district out here. So I, I knew that there was opportunity out here. So I do remember driving across, daydreaming about one day, if I could just get this project off the ground, that'd be great. The missing piece of it, it's always been the missing piece of it, was finding a material that was washable, dryable, essentially waterproof. Well, not essentially. It can make you fly. Water, yeah, exactly. Make you fly. And then comfortable, of course, right? You can't right, put a paper right. bag over yourself. That was it. And it was hard to find that. And it took a very long time to find that and while I was in between jobs and projects trying to figure out how I'm going to support myself. So how old were you when you started Thompson Tea? Thompson Tea itself was started in officially in 2011. I think that's when we officially filed the paperwork. And, that, and honestly, that was because I had to establish a wholesale account or a reseller account to be able to buy things at wholesale so that way I could test things from an R&D level. And then we opened up our website in January 2012. When was that? Six years ago? Probably maybe about like 30, what was that? Maybe 34, 33, 34, somewhere around there. So Matt is showing me with the, uh, if you graduated 2000 or so, I guess there was about a 10 to 12 year gap between you actually starting Thompson T and then college and driving out to California, right? Yes. Yeah, that's about right. There was because we had tried to find this material. And back then, you know, Gore-Tex was always the front runner. But at that time, if you put Gore-Tex in the dryer at a high heat, it would essentially melt. I'm sure they've come a long way since. I had never even heard of a Gore-Tex. Is that just like kind of spandex oh. material or something? Yeah, you're above my head already. <laughs> Gore-Tex was a very popular outerwear material that was waterproof. And then yet had some breathable capabilities in it as well. So it really hit the outerwear space hard. And they carved out this great brand identity from that aspect. So again, that was always the go-to for you thought waterproof, you would just go to there. I met with some textile folks in, in LA way back then too. And, you know, those textile folks were more really geared towards lifestyle garments and whatnot, not the specialized textiles that had to meet certain quality criteria as far as functionality is concerned. So it took a long time. And then, of course, you get sidetracked with other things and life and trying other things while you're still trying to get your project going. It was basically kind of like off and on for those maybe 10 years. You'd kind of look for material, but then you'd have your main job and get sidetracked. Is that kind of how it came about? Yeah, it did. Yeah, that's exactly how it came about. Because, you know, anytime you start a new job, it's going to take up a lot of time. And one thing is very true. It is difficult to do two things at once. I know a lot of people think that multitasking and that's not a problem. And I forget what book I was reading, but if your day job zaps a lot of your energy, right? And your decision-making, which again, in your twenties, you feel like you have an endless supply of energy and life, but decision fatigue is a real thing that we, you know, we've learned throughout the years. And I think this is probably why a lot of people do have difficulties chasing two things down, right? Because they think, okay, I'll get my job. And then it takes a lot of effort to continue a separate project outside of your nine to five, so to speak. In particular, if your nine to five demands some energy. And what I remember reading not too long ago was like, hey, get a no brainer nine to five, right? Something that you could go into autopilot that doesn't suck your decision making ability. So you can kind of reserve that for the project. But yeah, to answer your question, I had bills just like everybody else, bills to pay and 
luckily, obviously, I was single and young at the time, so I could live very cheaply and uh, very frugally and not have very high standards, if you will. But that's basically what happened. And your living arrangements or your women? (laughs) You know what? I found out very quickly when you're broke in Los Angeles, the women aren't really going to be beating down your door. That's for sure. So. Well, you know, I think that was good advice, kind of what you're saying. If you have a nine to five that's monotonous, you can conserve that brain power for something like later. I know, for instance, I listen to podcasts whenever I'm like doing outdoor stuff or just say doing any project outside, whether mowing or anything inside, if I'm fixing the house that weekend or whatever. And I find out even though I might be working physically hard for like eight hours mentally, I feel great. Because then I could spend a couple hours later that day, really, if I wanted doing something like a side project or, you know, if it's my main passion project or my main job, which is doing the podcast right now, I still have that energy to do it versus if I was critically thinking all day, other stuff that I have to get done, I wouldn't have that same type of brain power. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think the sooner people can realize that, the better, because there is this people seeing the, uh, hey, you do what you got to do. And when it gets tough, tough, get going, that whole thing, and you just push through and you power through. And it took years of that to realize oh my goodness, why are things falling apart for me here physically or mentally or emotionally? And because at the end of the day, and then I heard this great word a few years back, it literally was called, I've never heard it before, decision fatigue. And I have a business partner, by the way, his name is Randy Choi. He brings 20 plus years of domestic garment supply chain to the table. And coincidentally enough, I didn't know this when I had partnered with him or when I met with him, he had another form of hyperhidrosis. So he knew exactly what I was trying to do. But I told Randy, I said, Randy, listen, I think the heart of a lot of our stress is decision fatigue and decision fatigue. When you have a cumulative effect of all these things that you have to look at, whether they're mundane or not, it does tap away at that reserve. It's like now every time I get an alert on my phone, I've had to go in and consciously turn off a bunch of alerts, whether it be the alarm system, whether it be whatever app. I got to turn all that stuff off because when you start getting alerts throughout the day, even picking up your phone, looking at it, reading it, processing it, that's actually subconscious consciously, if you will, taking away from some of your brain power. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. No, for sure. Let's just say even 10 or 15 years ago, if you weren't looking on Twitter or Instagram scrolling through, you might have been closing your eyes or not mentally taking in whatever's on the screen and making a decision of if you like that or not. Before 10 or 15 years ago, you didn't have that issue. You don't get that rest that maybe you had back before. So I don't think people understand how much that can drain you. Agreed. Yeah, I think a lot of the people are obviously smart who are listening here, but I think they realize like taking off the notifications and all that. I even realized that before I started reading books about it. I would just always see like certain people that I knew when I started my first job, they had the outlook and they'd have the ding on every time. I'm like, you've oh. got to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> That's torture. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was just like ridiculous because they were older. Let's say the guy was 40 to 50. He'd never been used technology before to know, not even think about how much that draining him is energy versus <laughs> if you compact it into certain things, you're like a dog doing something. It's great that awesome the dialogue and the literature and all that stuff, it's, it's really getting attention, right? Like they're talking about these repetitive things that we do online and how inefficient it's become. Like checking email. Now, I just read recently checking email is just 
hugely inefficient activity now or can be, right? And it's leaning towards that way. And I think it's good. I mean, we all are basically experiments in this smartphone age. I remember when I was living in LA, one of my prior jobs, there was an older gentleman that was a neighbor of mine. He used to walk by and I used to kind of talk to him when I was out on the balcony taking a break. And you know, he'd ask me about things and he didn't use the internet. I think he was 70, 77, 76 at the time. And he would just ask me like, wow, all that great stuff. And what it realized was that now, the workforce, things happen so fast compared to fax machine days and the rotary telephone days and, and whatnot. It's just the workforce has been forced to adapt and operate at this speed that we've never really operated before as a collective whole. I think being very conscious of that is going to be important. We've seen the pre and post information age. And thank goodness, I'm glad I got to experience that. You know, we were right on the brink. I mean, I graduated high school in 96. That's when the internet kind of went mainstream. So I got to see what life was like on both sides. And, and yeah, just being conscious of that. Because one thing that isn't ever really talked about, I guess if you look for it enough, it will be. But a lot of times you see the success stories and you see the happy endings and you see they take years of grinding, gut-wrenching stress and life-threatening stress to a large degree sum it down into a few articles, and then no one ever really talks about that sort of dark side of entrepreneurship, which is very real. I don't want this to head in that direction either. I just want to throw that out there so that people are aware of it. So when the stress is grinding them to a halt, they can understand why. They can have a, oh, okay, this is part of the game, so to speak. I got to be conscious of it. And the more conscious you are of it going into it, the better. My business partner, Randy, he's got a ton more entrepreneurial experience than I do. I mean, he graduated from college and never went to work for anyone. He started running businesses and whatnot. He used to speak to this a lot. And at, when we first started, and he's about five years older than me. So when we first started, I thought it was just conversation, right? And then we get running in a few years deep and it's like, whoa, all of a sudden I'm getting sick a lot more. Just things are happening and I'm thinking, oh, what's going on? He kept saying it's the stress. I'm like, I was in denial. No, it's not the stress, not the stress. And sure enough, I realized stress is a killer. <laughs> you don't need to be a doctor to figure that one out. <laughs> right. No, definitely. You did mention some of this. We're going to maybe fast forward. And that's part of the reason I do the podcast is to get those stories. We don't have to go super deep and dark right, secret on it. But being an entrepreneur, it can be lonely. And then you don't have those other people that you can hear their stories. So by hearing your story and seeing like what you've been able to accomplish. For me, if I'm hitting a low with the podcast or my other job, what I was doing before or a future job, I'll remember stories that, hey, if that guy did that and he went through that, then I can do it too. Because normally you don't get the chance to talk to your everyday friends about this type oh. of stuff. Yeah, you're 100% right. And that's another topic in and of itself as well. It's very difficult. Those first two years, they were so brutal. When I started the business, the first two years, we had no income. I quit my job. And I don't recommend this to anyone. We started a family at the same time. So I had my first baby. My wife ended up quitting her job to stay home and take care of the kid while I did that. We had no income. We racked up. And I just released this information not too long ago for another little article. But I had racked up $100,000 in credit card debt. So I was all in. I was fast tracking myself to bankruptcy. It was boom or bust for me. Well, how about we we'll jump to that in one second. So sure. basically for 10 years before you started the company, but you were in LA, right? Yeah. I don't know if you had just several different jobs and then you had finally decided that you wanted to oh. do a t-shirt company? Yeah. You know what? I was very fortunate. I had some really cool jobs. My first job in LA, I, I was working for Pitney Bowes, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with them or not, but they were a Fortune 500 company and their claim to fame was the postage machines. These anywhere from small to large postage machines that you bought 
postage and they put the little red stamp on it, the indicia. Office equipment sales, very difficult grind, very well-respected training program. So I got the sales job with them. That's also where I met my wife and a few other people I still keep in touch with and learned how to really cut my teeth on the sales side. And I bring that job up, not because that's just where I met my wife too, but that sort of led to the other jobs that I had. Now, from there, I had a friend introduce me to someone from the William Morris Agency, which was a top-tier talent agency in LA. They had all A-list clients. There's only about four of the big big talent agencies in your typical mailroom setting. Now, I don't know if I was getting insulted in hindsight saying, hey, you'd be a really good agent. Okay, fine. Let me go check that out. I got into their agent trainee program and God love them and say, hey, they got their place. And it is this kind of wonderful orchestrated chaos that makes the entertainment business kind of run. But I realized shortly thereafter, that's not where I wanted to be. From there, I ended up selling private jets, not the whole jet, but like 25 hour blocks. I'm not sure if you're familiar with net jets and at the time marquee jet. I worked for Bombardier who manufactured Lear jets and Challengers and the Global Express was their ultra long range aircraft. They were selling those in 25 hour blocks and that's what I was selling. So my Pitney Bowes job is why the recruiter called me because it was such a well-respected sales training organization, right? And then again, equipment sales, usually guys coming out of there, the Xeroxes of the world, they're pretty hardened. So that's why he called me. And then that particular job, now here I am, I'm talking to, coincidentally, with your podcast title, I'm talking to millionaires every day. And for me, it was part selling. And then the other part was really just, here I am talking to millionaires. The great thing about the 25-hour block is like, hey, if I sold the whole aircraft, that's the ego boost, right? But in reality, when you sell the whole aircraft, you're not selling to Steve Jobs, rest in peace. You're selling to his pilot. But on the 25-hour block, usually these were personal trips. So a lot of these guys were calling you direct. Hey, I own an aircraft, but I need 25 hours for my other family members or for me or whatever. Or I got corporate jets, but I need one for myself. So I literally got to talk to a lot of influential people. Flash forward a few years, I realized, hey, if I'm ever going to be sitting in the back of one of these instead of selling these things, I got to get out and do something. My first job out of college was a dot-com. The CEO there was a great mentor to me. He kind of took me under his wing and we'd go out to lunch, share stories. And he was in Southern California around that time. And I remember we had breakfast and he told me, Bill, you need equity in something. He's like, you need equity. And so you can't just keep selling other people's stuff, albeit, yeah, you could carve out a good life for yourself. But if you're really looking for that residual base or something that could carry value enough to really get you past that domestic hump of your obligations financially, you're going to need equity. So I get that going. The private jet stuff starting to burn me out. Quick question about that. So how much would 25 hours cost? Because I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe someone here wants to rent one. Now they have a good idea. Well, the models have changed dramatically. And my old boss, while I was selling the jets, I just want to throw this out. She is, and for me at the time was, an amazing mentor. Her name is Stephanie Chung. She's an African-American woman who married a Japanese guy. To be a woman in aviation, period, is difficult, right? Let alone private aviation. She was just recently promoted to president or CEO of JetSuite. JetSuite is one of the general aviation companies that we're offering regional trips out of, uh, I think, Southern California area. But the reason why I bring them up is because my marketing guy who came out here just two days ago for our 2019 planning, he flew on JetSuite, which he got to buy a seat, 
right? And I should call Stephanie and ask for help because back when I was doing it, you couldn't sell by the seat because if you sold by the seat, that would throw you into the commercial aviation space, not the general aviation or private aviation space. But that, that, so a lot has changed since I was in the game. I mean, this is going back 10 years ago, but at the time when I was in the game, if you wanted a small two hour distance plane, they could seat four, maybe six people, you would buy into a program. And those things are typically costing, I don't know, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four to 5,000 an hour. They'd have to buy 25 hours, you're saying? Yeah, minimum would be buy a 25-hour block. And when you did that, it gave you access to the fleet, whether it was a closed fleet, meaning one company managed all the airplanes, Bombardier did, and then or an open fleet where they used a bunch of charter operators that managed their planes and just used them as an aggregate to pull from. So you'd give your 12-hour notice, boom, your airplane's ready. You could upgrade, downgrade. But to get across country to fly nonstop back then, especially, it was the cheapest was probably like 8000 9000 an hour. So being on the West Coast, I, I got to sell a lot of big body planes because guys, quite frankly, they wanted to fly across country nonstop. By no means is it cheap. It is still reserved for the upper half of the 1%. I used to get phone calls from guys that would fly commercial first class and sales 101, you never really lead with price. But with these guys, I did, right? Because they're flying commercial first class. They're probably banging down $300,000, $400,000 a year, which is great, but you're not justifying five, six, $7,000 an hour to fly even at that rate. And so I would just go right out, drop the price on them. And, and then usually, typically, they would be shocked on some of them. It was a major ego hit they would be very upset to realize that the next jump from your first class seat is considerable. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. From there, you said into 2010, you were getting burnt out from doing it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about, so now we're going to actually jump into the story of Thompson T. Yes. And you're about 33, 34. So we exactly. got the whole backstory and kind of how you got here. I'm married now and I got a daughter. And do you have any money saved up? Yes, I have some savings, right? If I could give anybody one piece of advice, especially now when people talk to me, even just through acquaintances and on the side, you have absolutely got to save your money. You have got to save your money and you have to protect your credit. And I'm sure we'll get into the details of that real quick because it was a crucial part of my ability to do what we did. I did have a little bit of savings, obviously not enough in hindsight. I did have some savings and so did my wife too. We were both read that book, The Millionaire Mind, and that just teaches you to live below your means and always save. So we had savings, but I had my daughter. My wife was not working at the time. The, the writing was on the wall with my private jet gig. I was burnt out. I didn't want to do it anymore. And I knew that I needed to do something. And so one of my old clients, I had reached out to as a follow-up. And then at that point, I made a conscious decision Start asking these folks, what kind of projects are you working on? That's the thing. People wonder how you know how you break the ice with these mega millionaires and millionaires. And stuff. A great way to do it is always ask them, what project are you working on? Because all of them are working on something. They got something they're passionate about that they'll be happy to share. So I kind of cracked the ice with this gentleman. And just for privacy sakes, I won't say his name. But he took an interest. And I told him about this product. I said, hey, I have an idea for a product. At the time, I thought that other companies had already beat me because when I started researching this thing, nobody was doing anything like this. I'm not sure that blocks on our, so it wasn't even out there. All of a sudden, I did an internet search and I saw these, saw these like two other small companies popped up where they were claiming that they made these shirts that blocked underarm sweat. And I thought, oh man, I missed it, right? I missed the boat. Oh, great. I missed it. But what I noticed when I was looking at all of them was two things. A, the solution didn't seem right, meaning that it didn't seem like it was totally effective for the market that would drive that demand. 
aka myself, and then B, the marketing message just seemed off, right? So what I was literally going to do, because I was so desperate at the time, I was going to do a spec marketing plan, fire it out to these little companies that, again, after realizing in hindsight that one of them was illegally using some athletes' pictures, I thought they were a lot bigger than what they were. So in any event, I said this to this gentleman, my ex-client, very fluent, private flyer, and he said, no, don't do that. He said, come over to my house, show me your business plan. <laughs> this is the defining moment, right? And that's what I did. And I got so excited because I thought, oh, a guy like this showing interest in my little project, these people don't waste their time. Time is more important to money than them. I mean, that's why they're paying $8,000 an hour for the flying jet. Exactly, yeah. exactly. We had an aircraft that was a little bit faster than the other ones. The Learjets are typically a little bit faster, but it was a little bit bigger too. And it was way a little bit more than what this one guy needed. But he was flying Chicago to uh, LA all the time. And I said, oh, by the way, I'm going to save you a minimum of 15 to 20 minutes each way. And I said, I don't know how much you make an hour, but I'm sure you do. So how much is that hour worth on each leg? Boom. He did. He right then and there was like, you're right. And next thing you know, he bought the more expensive solution where I was like, oh, awesome. Anyways, I digress. He said, come to my house. I showed it to him. He expressed an interest and I still keep in touch with him. I owe him a lot because without his vote of confidence, I don't know if I would have had the confidence myself to really go forward and to really push hard because having someone like that believe in it was enough for me to be like, okay, I got to do this. Also, also my, again, very naive. I always thought, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pitch this project and then this rich guy is going to invest in it. And then I'm going to work underneath him with a little piece of equity. And then it's all going to be great. I have my kid. I got my salary. I got the big nut on the back end looming out there. <laughs> And no, needless to say, it didn't go that way. <laughs> Tell us how it went. I went over there and told him your business plan. Well, we were at the point where he said, okay, listen, I like your concept. He said, go get a few of these made. And I'm like, okay, because he wanted to test them. Go get a few of these made. I said, oh man, okay, great. How am I going to get a few of these made? So here I am. I hop in my car. I drive to the fashion district in LA. I start pounding the pavement, literally knocking on doors, trying to find someone. It's funny as I had the Calvin Klein undershirt that, because I just needed any undershirt to show someone, this is what I'm trying to do. And it was interesting. Everybody thought that I was trying to knock Calvin Klein off. So nobody or I was trying to catch someone, not Calvin Klein off, so nobody would want to talk to me, right? And again, I learned all this after Randy came on board because he showed me clearly I was in the wrong spot. And obviously, these Garbentos, that's probably what they were thinking, which was affirmed later on. So again, the cool thing is, is that Randy was a mutual friend of my family. I knew he was in the clothing business. I didn't know to what degree. Funny story, many, many years ago, we were actually golfing. This is probably circa 2007. And I knew it was in the clothing industry. I didn't want to let the cat out of the bag, but I said, hey, we're on the 10th hole. I remember I said, hey, Randy, question. Do you know of a material that's washable, dryable, waterproof, and comfortable? <laughs> and he, you know, he thought for a while. Again, he was your typical private label guy, meaning in your lifestyle stuff. If you had a clothing line that you wanted to do, you could call him and he would piece the whole thing together from raw material to finished product. Or he did a bunch of off, uh, not off, off shoot, but shorter runs for big brands that needed quick turn times. They would call him, hey, Randy, Bugle Boy, Boss, you know, all these, here, we're going to do that. So he had all that, but the technical textile still, it wasn't there. Why? Because there's no demand for it, right? So why would he know that? And then flash forward, everyone's like, hey, you need to, friends and family, hey, you should call Randy, you should talk to him. And some people kind of had the inkling that they thought he might have had some sweating issue at that time or remembered it. By the way, our wives, their families grew up together in San Diego. I would see Randy at mutual parties, weddings, get together. 
and everything was very acquaintance driven. We'd hang out very sociable. So that's kind of how we knew each other. So the perfect co-founder, if he's in this business and he's been knowing him forever. And he happens to have hyperhidrosis. So I call him up. I was actually going to hire Randy as a project manager. That's what I went in with the intention because this is what he does. Well, one second, if you don't mind. I just joined Patreon to support you guys. So that's something that helps you guys out. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Cool. You know? Yeah, I appreciate it. With the Patreon membership, you get this one-on-one -on -one call. Plus, we're doing two group calls a month now with past guests. Plus, there's an exclusive Patreon feed where you get special episodes if you're a Patreon member. Oh, man. Nice. I'll to snap to Awesome. Because you said you saved up money, so you were thinking you're going to hire him. So how much money, can you give us an estimate of like how much you had saved up if you're thinking about hiring this guy who's this good? I mean, I'm just trying to think how much you had saved up because you said make sure you have enough saved up. Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing. I don't know. And again, pure entrepreneur mode, right? Pure naivete. I didn't even think as far as what the compensation was going to be. I was going to let him, funny enough, how we make our business decisions, right? Everyone says, do you have a budget for that? Of course, no, we don't have a budget for anything. You tell us how much it's going to cost and we'll try and figure it out. I mean, those were the early days. So I didn't even guess to what it was. I wanted to get to step one where it was like, here's a project. Can you get it made? And if yes, you can get it made, then why don't we go from there? But I didn't think that there would be a partnership that would be born here because I knew he had this supply chain because we had a phone call prior to him and I getting together. So I kind of knew what he was doing. I was actually in route and I wasn't evading the question about how much I had saved up at the time. Honestly, I don't even know. I'm, I've been through so much since then. I mean, I would imagine I might've had like maybe 50 grand saved up, something like that. My wife might've had 30, 40, somewhere around there too. I appreciate you sharing that because the thing is like, you might even have like way more than that. No. Well, cause you're in California and you quit your job and you had a kid and your wife wasn't working and you're thinking about hiring this guy. I'm like, he must've had a lot more saved up than I thought. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, it wasn't much. No, I remember I racked up a hundred thousand dollars on my credit cards. Right. Yeah. That's what I was curious. Yeah. So what I was doing, that's why you keep your credit great, right? Because you're going to get extended credit and you need that. And obviously when you start your business, your credit's everything. So what I would do is I would roll these balances into these 0% 18 month 0% offers or 12 month 0% offers at 3% on the debt. That's literally what I was doing for the first two years, just rolling this debt over every time the interest started getting crazy. If you don't mind, I'm going to start jumping in a little bit more. Just yeah, make absolutely. sure we stay on track for sure year by year. Because yeah, it's been a great story so far. I just want to get in the details of how long it took you to actually get this first t-shirt out. Because I mean, it's hard to think of, like you're saying, the first two years, you didn't make money. When you're working as hard as you do at that time, what keeps motivating you when you're not making that money? Do you think you're still going to be able to make this thing happen? Because I go through a similar mindset right now with the podcast. When you're busting your ass and not making money, <laughs> it's the worst of both worlds, kind of. It is the worst of both worlds, and it's very counterintuitive to how, in particular, many Americans believe it should be, right? I mean, a lot of us are tuned to instant gratification. Yeah, very difficult. But a couple-part question there. You were asking, like, how did we get through the lean times? A big piece of it, because here's the thing. There was a lot of times where I remember telling my wife, I have no idea how we're going to make this happen because I ran the numbers. And for us to even come close to breaking even on living in Southern California, the cost of living was pretty high. I mean, we scaled everything back, very frugal. We didn't go out to eat on any of that stuff. My wife wasn't getting her hair done or nails done or shopping in general, other than the essentials. We always had a nice place to live because I had kids. So I wanted to make sure they had a good roof over their heads. That's probably the one place I probably could have cut the spending a little bit, but hey, it is what it is, right? What kept us going? Well, I remember my wife telling me, well, Billy, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And 
this is the rite of passage. This is how you earn your stripes. And I had to remember that, that if it was easy, everyone would be doing it and the reward wouldn't be there. The other thing that kept us going is that, you know, again, axillary hyperhidrosis, no solutions out there, still no real solutions out there, definitely no permanent solutions out there. And they came out with some new crazy microwave technology, which I don't know if I'd be wanting to shoot myself with that, but hey, to each their own. These people were truly suffering and I could understand. Randy could understand. He dealt with it too. And then when you start getting testimonials like, you changed my life, that's probably what we hear the most. You have changed my life. You have given me my confidence back. It has been 10 years since I took off a jacket. I had a mom write in one time that her son had dropped out of school since buying our shirt. But she was worried he was becoming agoraphobic. And since buying our shirts and wearing them, he is now back in school. He has now rebuilt his social life. I'll never forget this. That's why I'm citing it now. I mean, this was probably one of our best ones. And she said someone once told her that a mother can only be as happy as her most unhappy child. And she said because of the truth in that statement, not only did you change his life, but you changed mine as well. We would get stuff like this. Even when sales were dismal, we would get stuff like this. And the efficacy of our product even surpassed our own expectations. I thought the more severe, severe cases would be able to breach this thing and deem it in ineffective. That honestly, too, kept us going because I knew that there was people out there that needed this. They needed this, right? And all we had to do was just get the awareness out there. You know, to put it in perspective, our first year, and we did 90,000 in sales. I mean, we grinded for an entire year, and we did 90,000 in sales. And you're saying that before you're about to say what you're about yeah. to do. And what was the lifestyle like? How many hours were you putting in when you're doing oh, that many in sales? Man. I mean, you know the deal, right? I mean, I remember when Randy and I would be up at 11 o'clock at night, midnight, just trying to work out kinks and get things figured out. Everything, essentially, that my employees are doing now, we have done. I was picking shirts out of my bedroom. I had to set my one closet up as a little pick area where I stacked the boxes in there. And I was pulling product from these orders that we were getting, packing them up, taking them down to the post office in my 97 green Explorer that I still had and dropping them off and shipping them out and then coming back and doing customer service. And then when that became too much, which was only a few months later that like, Hey, I can't spend my day doing this, right? Like I got to figure out how we're going to grow our company and everything else. That's what the lifestyle was like. And my wife, again, I think on the questionnaire, one of the favorite books I read was The Millionaire Mind. And what's so important about that is you get the general gist is be very smart, be very frugal. You have to be very frugal. A lot of these self-made millionaires, they weren't buying luxury items. They weren't going out to eat extravagant. Matter, matter of fact, a lot of them were packing lunches. A lot of them were reusing their brown paper bags, resoling their shoes. So my wife was on board. She saw the big picture. She was willing to forego the upfront gratification and sacrifice for the longer term, and albeit it is paying off for her. And so the lifestyle was really, and you know what worked out? Kind of catch 22. It was brutal because obviously when you start a family, it's very difficult, um, let alone starting a business and a family. Each one of those mutually exclusive of each other is difficult. But because we had such little kids, oh, and two years later, I added another one, my youngest daughter. But because they were young, you know, you find yourself, you don't want to go out to eat because you got to get all the stuff together. You got to great, you got to go out. And when you get to the restaurant, next thing you know, your child's throwing up on the table and it's like, okay, we got to go. Or they're melting down. And it's like, we got to go. It kind of worked out well. We'd stayed home. Again, a lot of making our own meals. Oh, no family vacations, right? I mean, our vacation was living the way we were as in our mind. There was no vacations. There was no going out to eat. There was no buying 
big ticket items. I remember I had this old cheap leather couch that was starting to crack and look terrible. It just looked so bad. And I remember I had this crazy idea that I was going to turn all the leather inside out because on the inside, it looked more rustic and it was miserable. That went for a few months too. You really cut back. And then at that time, you really have to put things into perspective when you think, hey, listen, billions of people are living off of a dollar a day, right? Or less. You scale back. I think it's a good exercise. I think you should be able to figure out what your lean lifestyle is because you need to put that into effect if you're going to self-fund your own business. Yeah. And I appreciate you harping on that because I think to me, that's the easiest thing you can do. Some people don't understand. It's really, you can get by on a fraction of what you are now. If you just think about it, it's not how much more difficult it is to go get sales and make a product. Even if you aren't starting a business yet, but you plan on doing it, if you just start cutting back right now, you're going to save that money so you can do that business sooner than later. Was it just you and Randy the first year when you did $90,000 in sales? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was me and Randy. It's still just Randy and I, but yeah, it was Randy and I that we did that 90,000. Okay. Then tell us about year two. If you don't mind, we'll just kind of go chronologically. Yeah, on. sure. Year two, we had half a million. Wow. It was like, wow. And you know, so we spent the whole first year. Wait, wait, it was more than like, wow, you <laughs> had to be like, <laughs> well, the reason why it wasn't more than wow, Austin, is because the reality of it was we had to get to a million. Because remember, mind you, and it's funny because I used to tell my wife this too. It's like, hey, remember, I sell $25 t-shirts that I got to split the profit on and also pay taxes on, right? So in order to cover the cost of living in California at the level that we were at, which was pretty bare bones, mind you, but again, we pay a little more rent than we probably could have. We could have holed up in a one-bedroom apartment and made it work, but we had to get to around a million dollars in sales. Yes, 90,000 to 500,000 is amazing growth, the biggest growth year of our history. But for me, this is halfway. This ain't going to cut it. We need to get to a million for me to even have a chance at break even. And that was the stages. It was get to break even on the personal finances. Boom, check, right? Replace the income. My wife was in sales as well, pharmaceutical sales as well. So collectively, her and I, if I would have, if we would have stayed in our quote unquote corporate sales paths, we would have made a nice little income. And it was okay, replace that, match that income. Boom, that happened. And then everything else after that was cherry on top and paying down debt and getting a much more solidified financial future than obviously what we had because we had risked it all. We're still playing catch up. But I think that's really good what you said there because actually, I mean, I'm just in the process of doing that exact same thing. And you have kind of like little goals because I mean, I don't have them written down, but mine is the exact same thing that you're saying. It's like, okay, first, like make the bleeding stop, right? So all the money <laughs> yes, that you're pouring into doing. Exactly. And then once you get a break even, which is kind of like where I am now, I'm like, finally, okay, the bank accounts finally stopped going down, but I'm still like working my ass off and making less than probably minimum wage, but at least. <laughs> I know. Right? It's like, if you calculate how much we make by the hour. I don't want to. I don't want to do this. Like, ooh, this is not pretty. (laughs) Yeah. But then the next step is going back to get the income that I used to have. And then after that, hopefully then you're building a company. Like you actually have a product company, which is a little bit different than like me doing a podcast, but the same type of deal. I think anyone who's thinking is you have to think long-term like that. Like talking about instant gratification before, it takes years. You wish it would be faster. All of us do, but that's not the case. It's because we've been led to believe that because what you see out there is you see these success stories that are quote unquote overnight. I mean, believe me, I was in Hollywood working at the William Morris Agency. And when you start peeling back the onion on a lot of these people who seem to have crept up overnight, it's like, oh, oh, they were child performers. Oh, their aunt and uncle was a casting director. Oh, you know, you know what I mean? Like there is a tale there that is, okay. they didn't just show up one day 
and make it happen. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't happen, right? And this is what I tell people. Like, look, in states where there's lotto, right, there's a millionaire made every week, essentially. I think it's kind of, I don't know exactly what the effective win rate is, but there's multiple drawings every week. So chances are there's a millionaire being made every week. Yeah. Does things like that happen? Sure. Of course they do. But is that something you want to build on and rely on? Absolutely not. And the reality is you're going to spend a long time to get out there and build what you got to build just because there's a lot of people doing it. Nobody knows who you are, right? Like nobody knows who you are. Nobody knows who Thompson T is. Even to this day, we get people writing in that, oh my gosh, where you been the last 10 years of my life? I've been struggling. And it's like, yeah, we've been here. We just can't reach everybody. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like I can't reach every podcast listener right now. If I could, that would be great because then I'd be number one podcast in the world if I could reach literally yes. everyone who goes on podcasts. Yes. But <laughs> you're trying your best to get out to those people, but people will find it and hopefully it seemed like it started working out for you. You were talking about like year three, right? If we want to jump back to that, finally making the bleeding stop. Yeah. And then trying to finally make some money off the thing. Yeah, exactly. Year three was when we hit our million. So from year two on, we had doubled up every year. Year three, we hit the million. And that was, oh, okay, like, wow, I can start paying down my credit cards and all that jazz. You can tell your in-laws so they, <laughs> they don't think you're crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My in-laws, luckily, were very progressive, if you will, onto the side where it's like, don't worry, as long as we have each other, everything will be okay. My parents, on the other hand, were a little bit more conservative and a little bit more concerned as far as what I was going to do to support my family. Year three happened. From that point on, business doubled. It was all that momentum, all that work that you start putting in, very similar to what the digital marketing landscape looks like, right? Where what you put out there will pay dividends down the road. That blog, that mention, that link back, all that stuff as an aggregate will perpetually lend itself to drawing traffic in. You, know, you benefit from it. You, know, you keep building it. And the problem was our business was growing. There was no doubt that it was growing. And just so everyone knows, Randy and I started this business with $10,000 each. He put 10000 in, I put 10000 in, and that's where we started from. When you're doing that, especially when you have a product-based company, you can only grow as fast as you product that you can sell, inventory. We had to spend every last penny to sink back into our production. And with Randy's domestic supply chain, he could do quick turns, 90-day turns. We were able to just keep rolling it. It's like in poker, we just keep shifting our stack in every time. And and luckily it, it would work out. And I'll never forget, I think the first year we showed like $150,000 profit and split down the middle. I got taxed on $75,000 and I'll never forget. I went to Randy and said, I got to pay taxes on $75,000. I didn't see any of it. I was like, I didn't see any of this money. Neither did you. He's like, yeah, welcome to the retained earnings. And I'm like, I was blown away. I almost started writing congressmen, women going, this is crazy. We had to put this money back in to keep this business going, and but yet you guys are going to tax us as if it was income. I'm since numb to the fact now, but it's just part of doing business, like Randy was at the time. Show I made this money, yet, but I didn't. <laughs> so that was a tough pill to swallow. And I was going to say too, you said in the beginning, you might have had like 80k or something, but the rest of your money that you had was for your family to hold on to, just so y'all could survive. For oh, a year or so. as far as my personal saving? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, because that's 75k. I might have seen. 20 of it. And then that 50 of it went back in into the company. But yeah, I was. Oh, well, I was sorry. I was talking about you originally when you said how much money you had saved up before you even started, quote unquote, oh, the company. Yeah, I was using that to live off of without. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Then, yeah. You only actually put 10K into the actual oh, business. Oh, yes, exactly. I only put 10K into the business. Randy had put 10K in the business. If I needed to put more, I would have. I also didn't want to ask Randy for any more money either. I figured if we could start with 10K each, I mean, we're lean. Let's see what happens. That's what we did. That other money was earmarked. The cash was being saved. Mm -hmm. 
for whatever, but I was racking up credit card debt as we were going. Everything I could pay with credit card, I was doing it, just racking it up, racking it up to help supplement the living expenses. And throughout that three-year time frame. Right. Well, how about that three-year time frame? I mean, how were you really able to jump that much in sales? I mean, were you doing something marketing-wise that helped tremendously? That seems like a huge jump. It is. I mean, to double up every year? Yeah. The first three years, just say 90K in revenue the first year, then a million year three? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, well, I think looking back on it, at some point, we did get a digital marketer to help dial it in. Ray and I didn't even know how to install Google Analytics. We didn't even know. When we first started, we were like, we list on Amazon. Oh, why wouldn't anybody buy Amazon when they can buy direct? I mean, we have these wall of foolish quotes that we did back then. Like, oh, should we turn on PayPal? No, let's not turn on pay. I don't like using PayPal. I feel much more secure actually entering my entire credit card information in this random website. We turn on PayPal for an international deal. And boom, next thing you know, like 35, 40% of our transactions are coming through PayPal. Amazon represents 45% of our business. They just did a, a great video on us, which will be released here in about a week. But this is how we did it. We did it, A, with public relations. PR. And then at some point we hired a digital marketer who coincidentally happened to have the issue, actually hyperhidrosis. So he became passionate about the product. And after working with us, he actually started his own company. He's doing great. Their company's called Human Marketing. He's doing an amazing job. And he's been running our digital marketing, making sure that those were firing on all cylinders, your typical, all that stuff, the A-B testing, the conversion rates, the SEO, the pay-per-clicks, all that stuff, the email marketing, the email nurture, the whole digital marketing suite. We wanted to get that up and running, which is built in large part on the HubSpot model. And that's that the HubSpot model is you create the content out, create the hub and draw all the traffic into you by creating that valuable content. If someone's listening and they're doing a product and you're tremendous growth, finding someone as good as you did to help with the aspect of marketing online. Yeah. And I'm reluctant to just say do that because there are a lot. A gentleman's name is Joel. Prior to Joel starting that business, he was really moonlighting us, just kind of helping us out. Here, I'll install your Google. We were just talking about this two days ago. I'll come to your office and install your Google Analytics. Okay, great. Well, hey, man, here's a shirt. You know, here you go. And then he did that. And so what you had to be weary of is there's, and especially at the time, they've gotten much, you know, people have gotten more sophisticated, I'm sure. But at the time, there was a lot of just BS digital marketing out there. Like, Yeah, man, I feel like there still is, man. Yes, but yeah. Hey, give me $5,000 and we'll optimize your website. Okay, great. That was the silver lining for us. Joel wasn't that. I mean, this guy graduated with an internet marketing degree. They weren't even around when I was in school. And because he had the problem, he obviously was very passionate about the product. Funny, he actually wanted to come work for us, but we couldn't afford him. Ray and I couldn't even afford ourselves, like let alone bring on a guy at his level. Not only that, because I don't want some people going out and just hiring up and spending a lot of money. I mean, he was very frugal with us. He worked within our little tiny budgets that we had. And then the other piece was the PR. I had a sales background. We weren't going to go wholesale, which that's a whole different conversation in and of itself. I mean, I had all the major retailers ready in line, interested in doing business per se, until I realized how big box retail works, especially when it comes to clothing. Looking back on it, a lot of it was PR. It was me hitting the pavement again with my sales background. I knew how to prospect. I knew how to target. I knew how to prospect. I knew how to take people through the sales cycle. And what I was selling was this new invention to help people out there like myself and the millions of others who deal with this issue. And we found influencers. 
So how do you do that? How do you find an influencer? Can you get your first, first influencer. maybe real example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give it to you because he helped us out tremendously. Well, I don't know his real name because he goes by his influencer name, but it's Tug the Undershirt Guy. I was aware of his website prior to the starting this thing. I literally worked with Tug because when I made the product, it passed all of our internal testing. What I needed to do those first three months off that first production run was really battle test it. Really give it to people who might be on the more severe end of the accelerated hyperhidrosis scale, like tear it up, right? I needed participants. I knew he had a small following based on some of these other shirts that were out there, which, by the way, proved completely ineffective. Thank God I didn't give them the secret recipe. All they did was just doubled up a layer of material, which at the end of the day, that's not going to work. You're already sweating through two layers, right? He exposed me. He gave me the ability to go out and find these people and then quickly became one of his most highly trafficked or highly talked about from the comment section on his blog. People were trying our shirts and they were posting their reviews. And then I reached out to the International Hyperhidrosis Society. Of course, they're spearheading as a nonprofit that's spearheading everything hyperhidrosis. And they gave us some participants as well. So we got them on both sides. And that was really kind of how we jump started. And that's how people started finding us and reading about us. And that was the beginning. And then from there, it was just as many PR hits as we could get. I mean, that's just because we couldn't afford to pay for advertising. We just had to go out and tell our story. And we did. However, I forget, we did hire a boutique PR firm at the time. These ladies have probably done a great job and they've grown significantly. We did hire a PR firm who ended up landing us on a show called The Doctor's. The Doctors is a, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's a daytime television show with a bunch of dogs. One of the doctors on there had accelerated hyperhidrosis as well. So he put our product on there. Funny story, Randy and I, here we are. I think that happened in year two. Here we are in year two thinking, oh yeah, it's finally here. Once this airs, I don't know if you ever saw that movie Middlemen, kind of like how the entire internet was born based on e-commerce was born based on the porn industry, right? Like they needed to know how to transact. Did you ever see that movie, Austin? I didn't, but I'm sure people did. Yeah, yeah. It's called Middleman, and there's a scene there where they figure something out. And like the Outlook chime, he would get a ding every time a transaction happened. And it'd be like, ding, 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 ding. And there's a scene in the movie where it just starts dinging off the hook because all these people are transacting. And I thought that's what was going to happen. We're like, oh, yeah, here we go. On the doctor's national TV. You installed the plugin on your website to go do the ding thing too? Exactly right. Just so you could hear it. You want to relive that (laughs) moment. So you installed the ding, ding, ding thing. I'm like, ready, get the dinger ready. Here it is, baby. Year and a half of work. Here we go. It's going to happen. And the show aired. Of course, it airs on the East Coast a little bit earlier than it does on the West Coast. And then you start seeing some orders come in and, and you're like, all right, all right, all right. It didn't even come close to what we had hoped for. It didn't even come. A matter of fact, I remember Randy and I got on the phone and we were dejected. You could tell. And it was just kind of like, oh, man, we didn't want to say this sucks as far as the performance, right? We didn't want to say that, but it was in our voice and you could tell. And we were just kind of like, all right, all right, yeah, I'll talk to you later. And at this time, I was still working in San Diego. He was in Orange County. Production was happening in LA because I'd lived in San Diego at the time. Now, I eventually did move up to Orange County when the business started getting traction and it made sense. But we did run this thing remotely. And it was so fun. We'd meet on the five freeway. He'd hand me a bunch of boxes. I'm thinking, oh my, this can't look good, right? <laughs> and I'd take him down to San Diego, set up shop. But yeah, it didn't blow doors. But what it did do is it took us to a level. Of course, we had our best sales day. Was it millions? No. Was it even thousands of orders? No, it wasn't. What it did was it increased our average daily order value and it never came down from there. And that's what happened every single time we got a PR hit. Shape Magazine, Editor's Pick and Shape Magazine, Huffington Post, CNBC. It would bump our daily average 
and it would stay there. And then obviously leading up to Shark Tank. I mean, that was 2017. That's when things went bonkers too. But it was those little PR hits. I mean, every local station, every local, you name it out there, you know, it was there. And whoever wanted it, whoever wanted to give us exposure, we were doing it. We didn't care. We still subscribe to that to a large degree. Now we've gotten into a place where we've been able to do some pay to play stuff, some sponsorship stuff, and a handful of them have worked out well. But still, we've come full circle. We've spent a ton of money on advertising. And actually, PR is now part of the strategy going into 2019. And the reason why we can do it, Austin, is because we created it. We're the inventors. There's a few knockoffs out there now. But what story are they going to tell? That they knocked yeah, you off. Yeah, they knocked us <laughs> off and we're in like litigation or something like that. They can't do that. They don't have that story to go out there and tell. You know, that combination of PR and the digital marketing, again, Joel is a very important piece of our business because he came in and got our digital marketing firing on all cylinders to the point where we had a great run up and we've sort of maxed out on that side. And now we're going to be looking at, at different ways to grow our business product expansion. We got a lot of new products coming out next year because we're getting a ton of traffic. We need to offer our customers more products and the convenience of buying them here as well versus going somewhere else. And even you're talking about knockoffs, y'all had the passion of at least y'all have the problem. Who knows? Maybe the other guys knocking off might have the problem too, but you went through all that these first couple of years, like we talked about, you're going to remember what you had to go through oh, to get to this point, I right? I will never forget. And I hope that God willing, we never have to go through that again. <laughs> so were you the guy seeking out all this PR? Because this is smart. I'm thinking, let's say if I wanted to make my own skateboard, for example, maybe I need to find the guy who reviews skateboards online, Absolutely. right? And then if it's a safer skateboard, let's say, and there's a mom's group about making skateboards safer, maybe I go hit them up, right? Because they're the perfect audience. So that's the way you were thinking about getting press. Were you the main guy doing that? Yes, I was the guy that was reaching out. I mean, in addition to the PR firm doing some stuff as well, to their credit, they did land us the Doctor's TV skit. And then I remember they landed us the Shape Magazine one, a few other regional things. These ladies did a good job for us. But in large part, yeah, it was me hitting it as well. It was me going out and telling these people my story, reaching out to them, getting them my story. So that way, if it resonated with something, a project they might have been doing, then great. But it's the old sales tactic, right? You got to go out and reach out to the 10 prospects and three might be interested and one might have your story. We scan the HARO emails, which is uh, help a reporter out. It's an acronym for help a reporter. It's a free thing. You join it and you just start kind of scanning through the opportunities that they have because these people will put these, hey, I'm writing a story on this or I'm looking for that. And then you just scan it to see if it fits your business or fits what you've got. We did that for a long time. We don't do it anymore but because, again, it, it didn't prove the most effective use of our time. But we were doing it back then. Yeah. And actually, episode eight, I was going to say we actually interviewed the guy who started HARO. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because my brother told me about that. That's kind of what he would use to try to find these press things. That's still a good way to go ahead and sure. be able to do oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's free. Hey, you know, as an on, as a bootstrapped entrepreneur, man, you start hearing free and <laughs> free is a big piece of it. I mean, free is great. <laughs> Even now, free is great. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Anytime you're using your money and not other people's money, free is amazing. <laughs> no, absolutely. So we got to the, about the million year or a million dollars in year three. We're wrapping things up quickly here. Do you want to take us through the last couple of years? And I had no idea it was just the two of y'all. I would have thought it would be way more. And just even looking at your website, you just seem like a much bigger company. As far as employees go, yeah. We added our first employee, Victor, who's still here, actually. He came on board, I want to say, probably in year two. Right when we subletted our first little location off of one of our contractors, he came on board. He's still with us. And then we added our very first customer service rep. I was doing the fulfillment. I was doing the uh, customer service when that became too much for me to do. And it made sense. Matter of fact, just so everyone knows, 
our first employee was making more money than Randy and I was. That's just fact. He was literally making more money than Randy and I was when he started. And then we added the customer service rep because she was able to handle that. And then the supply chain, it's all contracted out. Randy has a Rolodex of supply chain that he's been working with for a very long time. That wasn't under our roof per se, but then we just started adding more employees as needed. When the workload became too much, we would add some talent and everyone has stayed with us. I don't think anyone has resigned over these years. Yeah. So how many people work with you today? How many people do you employ? I think we're probably sitting, let me see here, yeah, probably like eight or nine, like around nine or 10, somewhere around there. Yeah. Somewhere around that number. Okay. I'm sorry, because we had a transition where we lost a few and we came from California and then we were, we're looking to add some more. So yeah, there was recently was a moving target, but yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood. Okay. That's what I was going to quickly hit on too. You had those people, but obviously work with a lot of other ones that are contracted out to help you with all this. But you're saying you're in actually Las Vegas. So with this whole time, we've been talking about California. So tell us about why you ended up moving from California to Las Vegas. It really comes down to one thing, quality of life. It was a quality of life thing where it was so brutally expensive in Southern California to raise your family of four. I really hope the dialogue gets split wide open on this and people start talking about it because I know what it takes to be able to buy a house and to afford that and run the numbers and figure out all the other buckets you want to fill up, whether it's retirement, college, healthcare. That's another thing. We're going to need healthcare like no other generation has before as far as the ability to fund it. And long story short, it was quality of life. California, historically, always the worst place to run your business. Chain of events that led up to it and realizing that, oh, you know what? We don't need to be. We're an e-commerce business and we don't need to be here. And being here is costing us X amount of money from a business standpoint, from a personal standpoint, unfortunately. And there's some other specific stuff that I don't want to necessarily get into on this call. But And then we were like, yeah, let's go. Let's move to Nevada. Business friendly, no personal income tax. I mean, that alone is huge, right? I mean, huge. And that's why we moved. And instantly, the, the employees that decided to move with it, we gave every employee, every single California employee that we had, we gave them a move package. Everybody got the same move package to incentivize them to come with us because ultimately I didn't want to leave anyone behind, nor did I have to let go of anyone. We gave everybody the package and the ones that did move out, instant quality of life increased for them. You know, For what they were paying in rent in California, they get a much nicer, bigger place for less here in Nevada. We're fortunate that we can do that. We were an e-commerce business. We're fortunate that we're not locally dictated and it doesn't matter where our product ship from. As a matter of fact, it might even help us get product to the East Coast a day sooner because we're, we're a little bit further East. What were your sales this past year so we get an idea of what it's grown to now? 2018, it was an interesting year. Our growth, because again, when you're used to 100% year over year, anything less than that is you feel like you failed. What we didn't take into consideration is the amount of publicity we got and free advertising we got. Shark Tank equivalent to 3 to $4 million in advertising. Despite not having that in 2018, we were still able to grow the company and we should projecting to finish up 2018 right around $10 million. That's still success, obviously. And then I was going to jump to that. Yeah, the Shark Tank, how that went. Robert ended up investing, right? Yes, he did. We ended up closing the handshake deal with Robert on television. And what I hope everyone will know is that he didn't cut us a check backstage. <laughs> it's true. They have no idea who we are when we come up there. We're up there for like 45 minutes. They chop it down to like eight or nine or something like that, do a little movie magic with it. But once we started going down the due diligence process, Randy and I decided that there was some differences and we thought we'd be better off on our own. And so we actually declined the investment. So what do you think about that group call? That was good. It's cool because you get to see what other people are doing. They're kind of in the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful. 
Definitely. Yeah. Actually, a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting. Okay. Yeah, because that's what I wasn't sure about. I know they'll say that on air, but then I don't know what actually happens afterwards. But just even going on Shark Tank, you're saying that that's worth like three to four million advertising, you thought? Like, it did it bump your sales up just dramatically? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bump yeah, just people seeing it, right? Just people seeing it, then the residual effect, everyone else sees you on there, and then you do some press leading up to it. Like, we had to go up to LA, the local ABC affiliate there, and do some interviews and preparation of the show. And even my hometown in Pennsylvania, the newspaper, they ran a front page article for me. It was a lot of press that, that went up there. And then this thing goes into syndication. It's still airing. I think it was the Gartner Group. One of the research groups out there did a study on the value of a Shark Tank airing. Based on their calculation, it came out to about 3 to $4 million worth of advertising. We're obviously super grateful, love the show, love the producers, love everybody we worked with there. Hopefully our segment made for good TV, right? Because it's a goal too. But, you know, it didn't work out. And and again, you know how deep these things work. I mean, you're in the finance industry. Just because you get a handshake deal doesn't mean someone's going to cut the check, right? There's a lot of things that happen before the money hits the bank. <laughs> Probably like 10% chance after they handshake yeah. your hand, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, they shook my hand. You're like, dude, you don't even know. You're not even close. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a great windfall for our business. Well, what's been the best thing about doing this? You know what? I think the best thing is still the mission. Not even I think. I know it is. I mean, the mission that we set out to do, and this, again, going back to what got us through the lean times, is that our mission was truly to provide people with an affordable, convenient, and safe solution to this. That's really what it was. When you look at it, that's really what it was. And we're all things sweat. Look, at the end of the day, if some magic potion comes out and eradicates this disease. Ultimately, yeah, will it be bittersweet because now I got to figure out something else to do? But ultimately, if you're offering these people this type of remedy and it doesn't have severe side effects and all that stuff, then that's awesome. I mean, I would welcome it. I love it when customers write in and they start telling me, hey, I don't need to buy as many of your shirts anymore because A, they probably bought a lot already to get to that point. And when they tell me that, that's actually music to my ears because that's given them exactly what we set out to give them, albeit in a more indirect way and maybe one that we don't monetarily benefit from. But ultimately, that is our goal. And we're constantly looking at ways to do that. Our job, if there is a more convenient, more affordable and safe way to provide a solution for this, then we need to come up with it. Right now, it just happens to be the Thompson T, a T-shirt that you put on. Oh, we appreciate you joining us, Billy. Is there any last words of wisdom? I mean, a couple of things that I was just thinking about that you're talking about the press releases and doing something along that nature. If you can do that for your business, it seems like that was very advantageous for you. And then the other thing that you kept harping on, and I think people know that I always think this too, is just staying as lean as you can. Oh, yeah. Saving up as much as you can before you start your own company. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even if you're waiting another three months, you have a nine to five. That can make a world of difference. That could be another six months of living. Yeah, staying lean and the press releases were the two main things that I wrote down. But is there anything else you want to leave with in everybody? Austin, I wanted to very distinguish between press releases and PR, right? Press releases, PR, sorry. anybody can do. They can just write them up, put them out there. And usually those aren't super effective. You might get picked up by a few other little affiliates here and there, but it's a distinction between general PR and press releases. But yeah, staying lean, a word of advice to anyone who has a partnership, you guys better ensure that you're fiscally aligned because partnerships usually break down in two spots when you have no money and then when the money starts coming in. It's this weird thing. Tension's high when you have no money. And then when money starts coming in, one partner starts wanting mahogany desks, all this other crazy stuff. <laughs> and it's like, no, man, that's not going to work. So you got to be very fiscally aligned with your partner to understand where the money is best spent. And 
You can't be going out for steak dinners every night too, thinking that you can write that stuff off. It's just, you got to have that there because keep in mind, a partnership in a business is essentially impacts your life like a marriage does. I mean, that person Randy has and vice versa, we have as much control over each other's financial destiny as our wives do. I can go into the bank account right now, go out and literally just spend all of it every last penny. And he couldn't Mm -hmm. stop me from doing that prior to me doing it. Obviously, we might have some problems after the fact, but uh, and vice versa. I definitely say scrutinize your relationship as you would a marriage. Make sure you guys are probably most importantly fiscally aligned. Everything ties back to the money. I believe we should donate to this cause and that cause. Okay, well, the tension piece is going to be money. It's not going to be the cause. Again, fiscally aligned. And Austin, I wrote one of the questions you'd asked me earlier on was what book would I recommend to read? There's two books that my kids will absolutely read amongst others, but from a business category standpoint, selling to the veto was huge because selling the veto is called selling to the very important top officer. That shows you how to get to decision makers, right? It tells you that these decision makers speak a different language. They have different values. That was huge. I actually put that into effect. Remember when I said that first job was a dot-com? I interned there and there was a lot of free time. So I ended up reading that book while I was interning there. And I literally put it into effect with that CEO. I befriended his gatekeeper, AKA his assistant. And the next thing you know, I had free pass to walk in their office anytime I wanted. And then when she needed a little pet project for the CEO, she was calling me, the intern, to come help her do all these things. Next thing you know, I'm going out to lunch with the CEO. He's dropping tons of knowledge on me. At a ripe age of 22 years old, the CFO would join us. And now all of a sudden, both these guys are dropping a ton of knowledge on me. So understanding how to get to the decision makers and decision makers isn't always the boss, right? It's for whatever task you have at hand, okay? It could be the purchasing guy for this or the purchasing, you know what I mean? It's not always the top person. It's whoever allows you to identify and get to the decision maker, which is, and at the end of the day, the old adage is everyone's got to sell something to someone at some point, whether it's yourself. At some point, you got to sell something and having some fundamental selling experiences is, I think, key. Yeah. Getting your wife. Anything, yeah, exactly. Right? Getting your wife, your friend. People yeah. don't think about it enough, but it's true. It's just anything, any relationship you have, even the person that you're talking to at the register. I think those are very important tips that you said there at the end. So we appreciate you coming on, Billy, and sharing your story. Last thing, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to reach you? I would say send an email to support at thompsont.com. That'll go into our support queue, which will definitely get attended to. I mean, if you send an email to me direct, I mean, my inbox gets slammed so much, I may not see it. Plus, the spam filters are so high on there that it may not even get through to me. But if you send an email to support, S-U-P-P-O-R-T at ThompsonT.com, and that's T-H-O-M-P as in Paul, S-O-N-T-E-E, right? Not just T, ThompsonT.com. That email will go into our customer service queue, and that is guaranteed a response and obviously getting to my attention as well from the team. If anyone's writing down the hyperlink or it's ThompsonT-T-E-E.com, just to make sure it's just, yeah, yeah, just not the letter T. Correct. TE.com. You're right. Thompson T with a P. It's T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N-T-E.com. If you're looking for the website, I'm sure we'll dominate a lot of those other keywords because of the digital marketing my friend Joel has been doing. Funny story. I figured if the t-shirt failed, I don't know, maybe I try to invent a golf tee. But when the URL was open for Thompson T, honestly, I didn't even want to use that. I didn't want to tell the whole world I had this problem. That's how powerful this problem is. That's how concealing the people who suffer from it want it to be. And I quickly got over that, obviously. But even then, even where I I stood to gain. I didn't want it to go out and call it that. But then the URL was open. I thought I got to take it. I took it. And hey, I used to be an avid golfer before the business and the kids came. I figured if the t-shirt failed, maybe, who knows, maybe a golf tee or something. (laughs) Pretty smart. You always got to think about worst case scenario, what happens. And there you go. 
<laughs> thank you again, Billy, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Hey, Austin, thank you very much. Anytime, if there's any follow-up stuff, just give me a call. Let me know. I would love to contribute and be a part of it. I honestly, doing this, it's an honor. The title of your podcast, to be even included in this group of individuals and these peers, it's an honor for me to do this. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members. So thank you to you both, especially our newest and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. Without you guys and gals, we wouldn't be here. So would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? After all, this episode wouldn't be available without our current members helping us cover some of the costs for you to listen for free. If you are willing to help support us and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com to become a Patreon member today. That's austinsbigp.com. Oh, and by the way, Austin's Big P, that stands for Austin's Big Podcast. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com.